Welcome to this Law Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law and Sport. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our guest today, who's Kristin Worley, who many of you uh, in the sports law community will know about. She's been involved in um, some very famous uh, cases and battles in the sports law world and sports world. But, um, so for those of you who aren't familiar though, uh, Kristin was a, a top level cyclist uh, and is um, a designer and is also now an activist. I'll call you an activist. We were discussing earlier what we should call you now because you've got multiple hats, but you're an activist, you're a proponent of human rights, you're athlete, you, know, you focus on athletes' rights. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think you're a bit, uh, well, hopefully people will agree by the end of this podcast, so hopefully a catalyst for positive change in sport. So mm-hmm. what, uh, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Um, it's been a long time. We've known each other for quite some time and to be here in London uh, and, and just ahead of going to Endoven for Play the Game and, and then to uh, the Sporting Chance event in Geneva. I mean, it's this is kind of on my way through. It's, it's a great opportunity to finally have a chance to see you uh, and meet with you personally and have the opportunity to talk to you uh, about the, the recent outcomes with my legal case and, and to be able to share that with your viewers and so um, for those that that, that wonder about what play the game play games on massive conference that takes place in Eindhoven that's got some fantastic speakers Mm -hmm. we'll maybe put a link to to, to it because they also film a lot of the panels don't they I think so yeah I think I think it's it's, would be great for many of your listeners I mean a lot of the the key international cases um, in in international sport um, um, will be discussed uh, in Endoven the way that they design it for that for the um, for that particular event. They're a great bunch of people doing some good work. Yeah, and so, and great discussions. The, and then the, um, the second conference that you mentioned. Oh, the Sporting Chance Forum. Um, I'm, I'm just so thrilled to be doing that with, the, um, with, with Brendan Schwab and, and colleagues um, in the areas of human rights. And it's talking about, it's in Geneva, uh, following um, the Play the Game uh, right after, literally the day later. Um, with delegates from all over the world in, in terms and talking about the mega sports events uh, with the Commonwealth Games, FIFA, um, and the Olympic Games. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delegate type of event, and it's, it's one of the, on the forefront of talking about rights in, in, uh, in the big, large sporting events that's, that's and, and athlete rights. That yeah, it's, it's quite an honor to be there and, and, um, it, and to be in that circle, to be talking about these things for the first time and, and really having an athlete-centric focus on human right, rights and athlete rights for the first time. So can you, because you're going to do this much better than I would, um, and we've just been, we were speaking before the podcast. We've had the most fascinating conversation. I wish I'd recorded it now, <laughs> but hopefully we can do it justice second time round. Um, can you just explain to people uh, how you ended up in a legal dispute? Because you're essentially an athlete who uh, went under gender reassignments. Is it, was it? Well, yeah. I, I, let yeah. me. Let, probably easier for me to uh, step in and explain it. Um, well, I've been a high performance athlete for about thirty years. Um, I transitioned over 20 years ago. I competed uh, internationally for Canada in, in two sports, in the sport of water skiing first, actually, and before I went into cycling. I actually, oh. I actually cross-trained with the sport of cy- cycling in my, in my, in my career of, of water skiing. And um, though water skiing is a, um, an Olympic-affiliated event, a sporting event, it's still, they tried four times to get it into the Olympic Games, but because there's a towboat associated to it, like so a power source, um, they're, they're still struggling to, to have it recognized. So there was a point in time in my career, as in my water skiing years, that um, I looked at cycling, which I, I, I enjoyed immensely, and, and used it, again, as I say, for my cross-training. Uh, for my for, for training for water skiing, that I, I I wanted to go that direction because and have the opportunity to go to the Olympic Games inevitably in the end. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I so for me in um, in terms of my in my my my, my very person as you're talking about. Yes, I've been through what we call a transition. Sorry, can I just pause it here? I'll, I'll do the edit. Yeah. Um, start it again. I'll just move the table slightly so so you got. Oh sure. Space. I, I try to. I try to. Yeah, it's, it's good. Sure. To use your hands, but yeah, it, it helps for my own personal yeah. expression. Right, so so your personal journey. Yeah. So my so my personal journey, um, it, it was an interesting time because I actually. Um, through my, my, my transition was kind of in during that time between my water skiing and cycling uh, period of almost 20 years ago, well, it was over 20 years ago. And so I actually never really thought about coming back to the sport after competing at a high level in cycling and then went, going through my transition as a young person um, because I didn't think there were the, I, 
because there's such a centric focus on your going through transition and it, it's obviously one of the biggest things that you'd ever go through in your life because it's, I mean, you're ch virtually changing your whole, your whole, um, persona mm. and right. And it's really the transition in terms of gender is such a big part of each one of us in our society. And, and I think when somebody has a, uh, a split gender, uh, between, uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to explain to those who are fortunate enough not, not to have to experience that and what it's like to live that day to day. So um, for me, that was became my focus. Um, athletics has been a big part of my life. Um, it was actually a big part of my identity as a young child because I, because I was dealing with a lot of my gender diversity issues at four, five, six, seven years of age. Wow. So for me, as you also mentioned, I was a designer. I was a very creative young person. And um, I didn't really realize, even as a young person, how my identity in terms of my gender diversity, um, because it, back in those days, we didn't know anything really about it. Yes, right. Yeah. Right. So a lot of young people, um, even though they struggle today, it's certainly a lot better than it was 30, 30 plus years ago. So, so for me, it was, it was it, you know, so there was hard to communicate in that space. So, I mean, I, to give you a point taken, I mean, I tried to commit suicide three times oh, as a teenager. Because of because of it, because of the um, the immense um, uh, cross gender behaviors that were going on, it's, it's a very physical thing. And again, because there wasn't a lot of education back in those times, is that you're you're struggling with it, and you're trying to fight within the forces of our society, of you know the very simplicity of male female in our society, and you're trying to say. I'm trying to fit into this, but yeah. it's just it's just not working. So it was it was impacting my my relationships. It was impacting my schooling, uh, a whole range of things. Um, and I didn't realize till I was older and eventually going through transition um, that how it was affecting me. Um, so sport became a very big part of sorry, that. Sorry to to, to can I ask, um, what was the trigger for you? What was the so you're going through this like this this turmoil? Just for people yeah. work for by myself. No, absolutely. Been yeah. Through. So. Um, it's, I used to I used to look at it like as a young child. Like I I used to I'm happy to talk about it now because I, I even speak about it at lectures. It's funny because as a young child at four, five, six years of age, um, I was fortunate to have a, a sister who was four years older than me, and um, so I was dealing dealing with cross gender issues. So I was having an older sister. It was helpful to me to be able to. Um, to, to deal with that side of my identity and help it helped to um, synthesize that when I when I was really stressed um, because what happens the basic it was like a light switch going on and off um, because as you and I are when we were born based on the sex of your body at that very moment society puts you in two trajectories right trajectories so the issue is is that what happens in in, the, in my particular case. Um, even though I'm an XY individual, what happens at 10 weeks of gestation, the, um, the Y chromosome kicks off in the, in, the, in, the, in the gonads, which then becomes, which becomes over, it becomes the testicle, because we all start off as female yeah. uh, on conception. So what happens is that the Y chromosome kicks in and increase, tells the then ovaries then become becoming uh, testicles to increase the testosterone to create the, the male sex characteristics. So, but what happens is though the hypothalamus gland, which in our brains that helps determine gender, um, which a lot of people um, don't really know about or understand, is that the testosterone didn't reach my hypothalamus gland. So again, as I just reiterated, just to reiterate that we all start off as female. So it's that infusion of testosterone within eight to ten weeks of, gest of gestation that helps the body go from the, the that from the female sex to the male sex, or in terms of the, the the function of the hypothalamus gland and how it perceives itself of the gender of the individual in correspondence with the sex of the body, so it's very. It's, so what happened is is that my hypothalamus gland still saw myself as being female in the center of my brain, and my body continued moving towards the space of the male sex characteristics. So what it's. It, so it, so you're in a constant conflict yeah. from day one. So every time as you become older, like I knew it was between three, four, five, and six, I was having cross-sex issues because my brain was telling me, sorry, my body was telling society that I was Bob, and then my, my brain was telling me, but no, you're Bobby, right? So, yeah, yeah. so you're constantly in this flex. So you have this inner turmoil going on all the time. So. And then you're in your, your I was in a very conservative sport family in Canada, and the issue became, 
you know, I'm having to be Bob all the time, but my brain was telling me I'm Bobby. So there'd be triggers. So as, as I was trying to say, it's like a light switch going on. Mm-hmm. So the anxiety would, would mount so much inside of me because I'd have to deal with Bobby that I'd have to go and, 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 and manage in terms of, uh, the, the, for the purpose of the listeners, yeah. but the female aspect of my of my of my, my brain yeah. it, requesting your body, you need to be able to do this and behave like this. So um, just just I think two things we have to we have to link to some of your lectures on this. Yeah, uh, at the bottom of this. But but in terms of this, so to get to the the, the disappointing case at the moment though. I just what, want, was, what, yeah, what was that trigger though? That, that, that's a lot of you. you know, well, yeah, absolutely. So I just uh, just I wanted to explain to the listeners that. Something in terms of transition is not something that somebody makes up and says, I want to make that, that's why I'm mentioning it. It's not something that you make up or say, oh, I want to transition tomorrow and I want to compete in sport. So we've heard all these myths, (laughs) right? No, it happens at a very biological level and and that it's very real. It's very physical. So this is why I'm trying to explain it. So so it's very clear. It's very clear to the listeners. And so at a very young age, I was dealing with this. So as you go, as you age... As we all get older and then we go through our pudescent development, what happens is Bob and Bobby become more and more conflict. And as we became more, our brains develop and, we, and we're getting more socialized by all the incoming information of our society, it becomes, the, the anxieties mount more and more and more. So it becomes very physical. So for me, that's why I tried to commit, I tried to commit suicide because at one point I felt that I was, I was letting down my family and I felt like a bad kid. I felt like I was bad. And I was doing things that were wrong because I was behaving in a way that I couldn't control or manage, but it was very real. But because society doesn't, wasn't prepared to accept these things, I was living in, in two worlds, that, that, in two different parallels. And, I, and it's funny, I grew up, even though I'm, I grew up in a conservative Canadian family, I grew up in the, fam- the, the family of Canadian sport, and it was a yeah. very close-circuited group. I had a lot of opportunity. I was very fortunate in that space. But the irony is I was very alone. Like I had all these opportunities, but as a child in this space growing up with it, I was, I was completely lo- alone. And so sport then became my, my trajectory for me to kind of find a, a space where I could, I could find community so, and so, be accepted as an athlete. And so the, um, the super helpful, thank you. Um, and, you know, very insightful, and I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners will, will, will agree <clears> with <throat> that. Um, and so, but... So for, for the support, did you, was it the fact that, were there, was it the sort of a shift in society and the research and everything else that enabled you to go through the transition? Or was, or, or was you just going, right, I need to do something and now, like with all the pressure built, like, I'm just yeah. fascinated in the sense of, yeah. like, like, what, like, because obviously that is a positive thing at that point, but how did, like, I'm just, I'm just curious. Just yeah, it, it actually came to, I, I had a breakdown. It, I'd be, I, it was in my, in my late 20s. And um, what had happened was, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I was very, I'm a creative kid. I was a creative angel, and I went, to, I went to design school and so on. And what was happening is that the world was, again, coming back to the Bob and Bobby concept. And I was working as a professional designer. And, and, and the problem was, as Bob, everybody was, as we got older, protecting more and more Bob at me. And, and, and my creative attachment, in terms of my creativity as an individual, was attached to, to Bobby. So even in my design processes as a professional, we're in, in conflict with each other all the time. So as I grew professionally, my anxieties even grew even, even more to where I actually had a breakdown and to where, where I was kind of talking to you about this light switch, uh, which yeah. I had to act every day. And it, it became more and more as I got older. And then what had happened is the light switch stayed on one day. And I, I it actually had been doing a presentation to the heads of Pepsi-Cola in New York um, on, a, on, a, on a brand piece I did for, um, for some movie theaters in Canada at the time. I had to go down and give a presentation in New York at their head office to the, the president of uh, Pepsi-Cola, uh, PepsiCo. And um, I remember sitting in the airport on my way back, because um, it's, it's an hour flight back and forth between Toronto and New York, uh, that evening. And all of a sudden, I all broke out in a deep sweat, and I just had this panic. I had this panic, and uh, a panic attack. And, and the light switch wasn't going off, and I'm going, I'm going, oh crap, <laughs> I'm really in trouble. Like, like I also I couldn't hide it anymore. Mm. So that was my that was my breaking moment. That I, I actually physically had to go and deal with it. Yeah. And, and so and then fast forward then. So you just <clears throat> you know, rightly uh, uh, so, uh, you put all your energies into that and you focus on that. As right. you said, you know, again, you know, just more you know, a very difficult and you know, there's a lot of things going on I should imagine at the time. And then the, the, sta- the staple then in your life is sport. 
and you want to get back into sport. And is that how? Is that how? It well, it's sport. It's just a, sport played a big part even when I was at, in, back in my public school days because I was bullied a lot and I didn't realize how my gender was in, how I was projecting to my friends and particularly my male friends. And I always wanted to have girlfriends around me, but as girlfriends to hang out with, and so I was bullied a lot. So, um, at, at, and, and in public school, we used to have in Canada what was called the um, sport the um, award of uh, a fitness program that tested young people every year in, in, in high schools, public schools all across Canada. And I was the kid who always got, uh, there, was, there was Board of Excellence, gold, silver, bronze, medallions, and you do, you do all these different exercise stations. And I, I was the kid who got the ribbon that said, thanks for coming out. You know, <laughs> and so, and that, that went up to about grade six. And then I, then I realized in grade seven, it was back in the day with Nike, when the first early days of Nike. And I remember these, these bright yellow waffle some people, some of your listeners might even remember. I'm kind of aging myself here. The the the, the, the endurance shoe, the white bright yellow shoe with the the, the blue sh- uh, swish mark on them, and I kind of I, I mean I was really I was attracted to them just from the design, <laughs> right, and the color and, and all of that, right. It really picked up on me, and so I started cross country running, and I realized then I could run and I could run fast, and then all of a sudden I realized too is that my friends who used to bully me and and right you know, wait outside the outskirts of the, of the school parks and stuff, waiting to beat me up, all of a sudden saw me as a different person through my sport because all of a sudden they saw me, they could, uh, in their minds, that I could be somebody within the, they could put me into a framework that they could understand. Yeah, what's the schema that they had in? Well, yeah, and it's a structure that, okay, this person, Kristen, could, could be actually, you know, be somebody that we could actually identify and through her sport, okay, she's okay now. You know, it's the way young kids work, you know, having some, you know, and, and that then speaks obviously to the structure of our society, how we boys have to be kind of more masculine and, and girls are being more on the trajectories of more feminine and, and the different working, you know, in, in evolving in that space, those spaces. So, um, so that sport actually became, in the early days for me, became a vehicle for acceptance. It became a kind of, it became my protection. Um, and it and also, you were, and you were good at it. And, and I, I, I learned that I was good at it. And and um, and and for me, that um, and running has still to this day is still my staple. And so, so in this case, because there's so much to get. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Okay, this is super helpful, but the the, the actual case itself yeah. is interesting, but also post case is yeah. even more interesting. Right. In a sense, so um, there comes a point you you uh, want to compete in cycling. Right. Come back into cycling. You want to come back into cycling. So, right. So correct. Thanks for correcting me. Yeah. You might have to do this a lot. <laughs> no, no. But the um, so you want to come back into cycling, and um, because of the rules in place at the time, you have to apply for a therapeutic use exemption. Or you maybe want to talk about. Oh no no. Okay, so first of all, <clears throat> the the um. We'll step back one step. The, the The International Olympic Committee came out with a policy in 2003 before the, the Greek Stockholm the, the Stockholm Consensus, which is the, the two, uh, which was developed just before the the, the, the Greece Olympics in Athens. Um, but be, just before that, and this is really important to uh, is to, to understand is that there was a Canadian uh, downhill mountain biker by the name of Shel Dumarask who was from British British Columbia, and uh, two years before that, she had come into Canadian downhill mountain biking, not cycling, but downhill mountain biking, um, and she was doing really, fairly well. And so it, it was then learned that she had transitioned. Right. And so what had happened, um, the, the Canadian system got into a shock because it got into the media, mm-hmm. and somehow this athlete had an advantage over all the young girls who had been through transition. And all of a sudden, the Canadian Centre Ethics and Sport, which is our anti-doping body, our national anti-doping body, Cycling Canada at the time, um, and even the UCI, all engaged in this space in Sport Canada, which is our governing body for Canadian sport, high-performance sport, all engaged in this space, and they took Michelle's license away. And um, at that time, I, I hadn't come back into cycling, but I had stayed, I, I've been out of cycling for five years. Because my focus was on my life, and I, but I still was, I was still training and to stay healthy because sport is a big part of my life. And I contacted, uh, I heard about this, and my mom actually called me and said, "Did you read about this young girl out in out in British Columbia that's having this hard time?" I said, "Yeah." So I, I, I hadn't been out publicly talked to anybody about it. So I, I made a call to out to Kamloops, a, a, a doctor by the name of Dr. Ross Outerbridge. He's an orthopedic surgeon, and he was head of. Um, 
the world's in water in my water skiing community. He's head of the water skiing um, medical commission at the time, and and Ross was a big supporter of me as as a junior in my water skiing days, and still today a dear friend. And um, we connected with a, a, future, a couple people in Ottawa, but a couple but a couple people named Tom Jones, um, who was now head of was head of the Commonwealth Games Federation, and a few others uh, at Sport Canada, and told them about me. Ross went in through the back way. Um, I asked him, so just to keep my privacy, and um, I said I'd be happy to help because I had about 12 years worth of research um, in this space, and I was able to provide Cycling Canada, the CC, then the CCS and UCI with the medical information they needed to understand um, Michelle's physiology and that she wasn't competing in advantage or sport, and she wasn't there to compete with advantage in sport, um, to which they gave her license back. And she then competed for the, uh, two more years. What the issue was is, and this is unfortunately, it was the timing of when Michelle came into the sport, is that globally, Michelle was like 64th in the world out of like 144 yeah. athletes on the World Cup. She had one or two events that she was, I think she was 17th at one time. She, wow. she got down that far, but one or two events. Typically, she was in the higher ranges. What it was is that, like in Europe or in the United States, downhill mountain biking had been, in, you know, well developed in the Norbis series and the European series, and it was new to Canada. And so what happened? We had a young, young, a lot of young female riders kind of getting into the sport. It was, but there wasn't a lot of talent yet, um, and so in development. So when Michelle came in, yeah, she was a decent rider. She's a great and she's a good person, really good person. But what happened? The fact that she had transitioned had nothing to do with it, but it became the issue because she was. Outclassing the, the the athletes in Canada, but not internationally. It kind of comes an easier narrative as well, isn't it? Yeah, and so I mean, I mean, so what happened is she got thrown out into this media, which so often happens in this space. We, we can talk about yeah. that with other athletes um, that happened thereafter. That they get overly exposed, and it becomes a gender issue in this whole issue of, of of transition, where in fact, no, it was it actually came down to the issue of no, it's a new event for Canada. We were underdeveloped to the rest of the world. It just happened that Michelle happened to come in, and I said to these young women, which now Canada is doing really, really well in, you should be happy that you've got somebody to chase, not thinking about that you're sitting 144th in the world and you're, you're traveling around the world and sitting in hotels. And so, <laughs> so, so, so what, is, what is your case coming to all of this? So where th that happened, after that happened, um, Cycling Canada called me to thank me at the time, and they, want, they, re I, they, asked Michelle, they asked if Michelle could call me to thank me, and I said, we've been friends ever since. Yeah. So uh -huh. behind the scenes. So what happened is I went, uh-huh, at that, at that particular moment in time, and I said, There's, I want to go back into cycling. And so it was interesting because I never knew this would be my journey where we are sitting today in 2017, and obviously we're going to talk about that. But I thought there was something inside me saying, I need to go and do this. And so it was interesting because as we now, this was 2003, early 2004, the IOC comes out in response to the incident with Michelle in Canada, saying that somehow we need to have a transgendered policy. And um, they came out the Stockholm Consensus, um, which then later we found out they had no science and research associated to the to the to the actual policy the IOC put out, um, which we can also talk about. But I was the first athlete in, in the history in the, in the history of that document to be gender tested in the world, but let alone happening in Canada. Um, and obviously, and I was the first cyclist um, as as a transitioned athlete in the sport of cycling. And uh, for those people who don't know about this or so haven't looked into it, gender testing is a very evasive and, uh, I'll, I'll just put it this way, there's no way on earth I'd want to go through it, no way on earth, <laughs> like, like, like literally when you read it, I was quite shocked, so to, like you know, scientifically the people probably look at it objectively and think, oh yeah, it's just a scientific test, but from a, from a, from looking out, outwardly at it, right. I would not want to put myself through that, so I'm not sure if you're comfortable to, to, to talk about that. Uh, we can talk a little bit about it, yeah. sure, because it was talked in my court case, so we can talk about it, and, and we're allowed to talk about it. So I, I just think it's just important for those people, because people just go, oh, you know, it's not like filling out a form. <laughs> no, boxes. And, and I think this is really a, a great point, because I think, and I think that's what's really important to talk about here. As, as any athlete, it doesn't matter what sport you're in, it can be athletics, it can be... It can be um, cycling in the case that we're talking be and you know any other sport that's associated to the Olympic movement okay it's not it's not it's sports specific to the Olympic movement in yeah. the Olympic Games right, right? Yeah. globally okay we all sign the same contract the same athlete license contract 
um, in, in every sport. So it's so that's really really important in this discussion. And so so typically, when you, in Canada we we have provinces. Like in the United States, they have states. And so in the province of Ontario, we have our our provincial body that licenses me for, in my associations to to the the Union Cycling International in Switzerland. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. And that's global. Right. So it's a global. It's a it's a it's a global. Um, agreement that I have with World Cycling, but it comes down through my, my governing body from Cycling Canada down to my provincial body. So for insurance reasons and racing UCI races and so on, sanctioned races. So for me, um, the typical female would go in in male would typically go into their governing body and do all the registration, hand over a check for their, their yearly registration, and then the UCI would then send them their their, their international license. That wasn't my case. I had to, I went through gender verification. And it's really important, I want to say right off the very beginning, which we can talk about a little bit more later, is that it's really sort of the international, the policy that was, which was presented into the world sport by the IOC, which was then handed down to the UCI, to, which was instigated in so, Canada. So, so from, from, again, I think most people will be familiar with that, but for, for the UCI to be included in the Olympic Games, they have to comply. Right, as, as signatories to the Olympic Games, the IOC has to has to apply these policies. Yeah, and the UCI, yeah. Right, and they, and they, right. And so, right, so that, that that's part of the Olympic agreement. And, and any other signatory sport is in the, exactly the same position as the UCI. So, um, and then, so you were going to say about it, though. So, for me, what happened for me, because they learned of my transition, that somehow... So what had happened, I had to go through gender testing, into which it was just really important. The IOC, in terms of the policy, had not created any procedures. And, what we, and the reason why they hadn't created any procedures is because they had no, no research to the policy in the first place. So if they created a blanket. Basically, what was provided was a blanket statement to support that this was what you needed to do, but they didn't actually have physical procedures. So I actually went through a process with nine men, at, and, 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 and I was put into a sequence of events which I was in, put and thrusted in, in with four panels, two, sorry, two panels of four men at a time. So they would ask me questions about my, my, my person, my reasons for competing, my sexuality, my, my gender, um, even issues around my, the actual parts of my transition, the surgical aspects of my transition, uh, even, even asking me, even going even further, asking me um, if I was going to do anything else to my body. It, like, how, like, Questions that were just so inappropriate that the questions they wouldn't even have asked their own daughters, yeah. right? There was never a woman present. There was never even asked to have a woman present. There was one medical, one medical professional in the space, and the other one was a legal professional from, from the Canadian Centre of Ethics and Sport. So my government was involved with it. My sporting body was involved with it. The UCI was involved with it. And I was told, so they had also my, all my gynecological information, all my medical information. And these are all like completely private information. Yeah. And these, I, when I asked where my information was going, they actually said, Kristen, don't ask. We're, please, we're, we're, you must trust us. Yeah, so, 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 so any other woman that I would know who had, you know, for most women, when we find a, 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 a gynecological information, yeah. when we go to a, a medical professional, you, you seek out somebody that's very personal. And you see, and, it, and it's you know, it takes a lot of work to find a. So it's, it's, these guys just treated it like it was carte blanche. It's kind of like they, you know, they didn't know they wanted to do something. They felt they should do something. They didn't know quite what to do, and so therefore, and I think this is like a, outside of this particular issue as well. Though this seems, uh, you know, symptomatic of sport as a whole, as in terms of development of sport, in terms of like you know the, the evolutionary process in terms right. of. They know they, they think they think they could be an issue. They're not sure. Let's, let's see how it goes. You're so, right on, and 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 and, and again. I'm not going to take away from the trauma that I incurred in that time because these men should have said, we don't know what we're doing. We are sports administrators. We are totally out of our sphere. There was not one person who was an expert in, on gender. Who, I mean, the other physician, that, the one physician that they had on the panel was an emergency physician. So, so there's, there's no experience whatsoever. But the other thing to come back onto, and it's their vision of woman. So it's their question, their process and the questions and the processes that I, I wrote. They actually wrote a five-page report, which went hand-in-hand hand with everything to the government, to the Canadian Olympic Committee, to the UCI, and to the, and to the IOC, with all my history. I have no idea where, where all the other so, stuff was disseminated. And so... Um 
I think you see, yeah, I guess part of it is, uh, you know, let's fast forward to where we, what happened with the case, but the, um, you know, part of this is, you know, and I'll put myself in, in this bracket as well in terms of people uh, quick to, to um, in society, as you said, you've got this sort of schema that, you know, or sort of a concept that you work with, anything that differs from that until someone actually explains something to right. you or you get more knowledge. And part of this is an educational process, but yeah. I think that the, the key point I think you've identified, which I think myself included, and I'm sure many other people in all areas of law, some things to do is recognise when you don't know something. Right, <laughs> it's quite, right. It's quite important in terms of developing good regulations, right? Right, and, 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 yeah, and, and these guys, and, and you know, <laughs> kind of God bless them, but <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a kind of fundamental way, because that is also saying, to, because it was interesting, because when we were going through it, they actually, some of them actually meant well. yeah. I believe yeah, they meant well. No, 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 say, yeah. no, no. But this is really important. I think some of them actually meant well. But I think they actually thought they were actually doing a duty to the IOC as signatories for the Canadian government and for world cycling that they had a responsibility to this because it was, I was somehow seen as a threat to sport and that somehow that I always I came out of it feeling one that they felt that I was a threat to sport and they had to do a due diligence on me. That in their minds, again, because there's nothing to support what they were doing, is that. In their minds, in their vision, because they wrote a five-page report that I was female enough, in their minds, these men, it was their vision, because there's no, there's no construction to the procedures, that I was female enough for them to then allow me to go and compete. And they were, uh, and so, and that's really important because eventually the, the documents went off to the UCI, where it's then uh, medical officer Mario Zazzoli wrote back in Jan six months later, I got a response from Mario um, saying that I could compete. But he also admitted in that letter of response that we have on record that they, 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 even though that policy, this is to January 2006, the policy which the IOC created was in 2003, 2004, mm -hmm. admitted he'd been in close correspondence with the IOC. It says right in the letter. Mm -hmm. And they still didn't have any procedures or policy in place to support the, the existing document that had been created two years ago. So so you, you waited a period of 10 months, was it? 10 months or so to, to get your, your TUE, the therapeutic use exemption. Under this new policy, is that right? Well, that, that that happened a little bit later. That was a little later, right? Right. So I so here I go. So all of a sudden, I'm, I I now I have a. Like, I felt like I felt I felt like I well, well researched yeah, and gone over it a few times. But yeah. Not. So we're now we're now in two thousand and six. So so the issue was is now all of a sudden I had a fresh face in cycling, right? I was like, okay, I've got my license to compete, and um, so I started going to the velodrome, and and it was I I, I was loving it. It was, it was great to be back on the bike. It was big, great to be in the community. Um, I started racing and, and racing was starting to, I started to get recognized really well and just like competing with you know I was competing with all the top girls in the country and I was right in there with the top girls but I was still getting my butt kicked um, I mean we have some some of the top women pursuitists in Canada are some of the very best in the world and we have a situation in Canada where we have ABCD categories so when you're so we don't we do under UCI races have the standard women male yeah. and but male and female races as it's per sanctions, but when we're training, we have ABCD categories. So if you're strong enough to race with the guys in the B and A categories, you race with the B oh, and A right. guys, because it all, all it does is raises our game. It makes us stronger riders. And so that's what we do in Canada. And so that's why we've got some of the world's leading pursuit pursuit yeah. athletes. Um, because of that, that, that theory is that, and that's part of the inclusion. We don't divide people the way we've typically seen in sports. So you're seeing this immense progression for women, and 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 some of the women can kick some of the top guys. So sorry, 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 sorry. I need to because I'm conscious of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for, for your, um, uh, so in your case, sorry. So you got your license, and you're sorry, so I yeah. So I was competing and training, and so what happened. Uh, very early on, um, because there's no science and research to this, and I was one of the, one of the first athletes, is that all of a sudden my body started failing me on, on the bike. And so I was getting massive cramping and it was taking me, like I, during races, that my body wasn't recovering. And I couldn't figure out why, because like, most people, when you race, your 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 the testosterone in your body, male and female, uh, increases um, through, to help you recover during the race and after the race. Stress response. It, oh yeah, but it, uh, the testosterone plays up to 200 different um, um, works, 200 different functions in the body every single day. So, separate of high performance, you know, it, it's, a, it's a main feature of our health and how our, our body talks to itself. And so a lot of people don't understand that. And it's, it's men and women, okay, XX and XY for that purpose of our discussion. It's just that it happens at different levels. So. In my particular case, as we've learned through the pro my process, is that when I went through a physical transition, my body lost the ability to generate 
any hormones whatsoever. So testosterone and estrogen as well. Because when I went through transition, I, I had a surgical intervention of my body. So I, my, the, the producer of, of, of testosterone is in the ovaries and in the testicles, the, 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 in the, the main areas uh, of mass, of where it's produced. It's just that for, depending on what the chromosome development you are, XX or XY, um, is, it, it, just, it, it deals with the actual volume of, of how much your body produces. So what happened for me, I went into complete uh, spontaneous menopause. Okay, so I, to go through transition is actually very, very unhealthy. <laughs> Even though it, del- it deals with the, 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 the split tr- tr- uh, gender issues, um, which is, that's the healthy part. But actually going through transition, you're living a very unhealthy life because there's actually 20 major contraindications that, that occur having let alone zero hormones in your body, let alone testosterone. So in terms of cycling and endurance sports, my red cell blood count dropped horribly. My, my, my heart rate is down in the mid, 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 to, mid to high 40s. Um, I, so my blood pressure is really, really low. My blood, my blood cell count is really low. So my testosterone levels are, so, are virtually non-existent. So recovery during the race, so after I take my first pedal stroke off the line, I don't recover through the race. Mm-hmm. Okay, it takes me three days to recover afterwards. Where so, it takes so, so it take, this is having a negative uh, performance. Yeah, yeah because every athlete's because yeah. in, in track cycling, generally though, as well, that's health wise, right? Which is just one thing, one of the things that can't be your case, right? It's just not. Um, as you said, it's not that it's good for you in terms of your identity, but not good necessarily. Right, and, and, and because the IOC never did the science and the research, nor did WADA either, and they still haven't to this day, is that they, they don't even have the right starting point in terms of developing policy because they never did the research in the first place. So they, they, they focus on testosterone, they focus on these avenues, but they're incorrect. So to sum up then, just because I really want to get into the, the, yeah, the yeah. outcomes of the case, because so, so the, to sum up is then, because of this, you have to take um, hormone supplements, right? Well, what I did, I, I actually tested the, yeah, so this is important. So, so I actually then, when my body was failing me, I went to the, the Canadian Center of Ethics and Sport in, in Ottawa, which is our, our national anti-doping agency. And I said to them, my body's failing me. I, I talked to some, some of the world's leading professionals and I, I put a therapeutic use exemption in for testosterone. And they didn't know what to do because I actually was, we clearly showed them the science and what was happening. Mm. And I put a TUE in front of it, but the issue was is that here the IOC's got these policies on gender, so they the CCS got into a conflict because I'm showing the science and the research, and I'm saying this is what's happening to my body. I'm because I'm I'm in complete androgen deprivation of the body, that these are the implications of that, mm-hmm. and they're and so it put them in a, into. An intersect between me and the IOC because the research that I'm bringing forward and talking about, the IOC never presented it, and it's completely contrary to their policies. So, so you're in a situation then where we've got your own independent research with the policy of the IOC. Um, Then, uh, so normally though, if there's a dispute, you go through your national national system and then right, we have, work his way through to cast right but in your case it was slightly different well the sdrc we have the sdrcc which in in montreal was it was our national like our well, arbitrary resolution over here right or, yeah, but arbitrary. what the issue became is that the 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 tue panel didn't know what they were doing so because as many people don't know there's a there's a, a, a person that's put in the position to lead the panel and then the three physicians are behind it and you're and it's supposed to be anonymous but even the um the physician, um, I, I don't want to mention the person's no, name, they're well known, but the, the issue was is that they're a heart surgeon and they're leading the, uh, this, this panel, TUE panel, on gender. And so, so you've got a heart surgeon talking about gender and hormones who has no, no background in this space whatsoever and, and three panels who don't have the expertise either on the TUE panel. So the issue is we knew that. And so it became, it became a t- instead of a three-week process, it became a 10-month process. Because, and I lost an entire race season and my, my continued failure to help because I'm very ethical. So I wasn't going to take the hormone, the registered hormones without the, the approvals of the CCS. But it took 10 months. And, they, and they, what they all, all they did and the, what was approved was a level so low it still kept me in a, in a postmenopausal state. And that it helped to improve the synapse function in my brain because part of no hormones is depression and, and, yeah. and, 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 and all of that. It's all affected. Um, so, but the rest of my body stayed dormant. So I wasn't getting any muscle response. My body continued to atrophy horribly 
because it couldn't it couldn't manage itself. So, but I remember getting the call from the CCS that that September because I've virtually been regender tested all over again. And there's there's points during the process with my TUB with this individual, I was a lot of times I was in tears because they were asking me questions far outside the issues of my blood work, and and it was and they, they were compromising the TUE process. So the issue is, is more importantly, in, in the actual TUE that I actually received from the from the um, the CCS, is is that they actually typically there's a, there's an issue called um, hypogonadism in, in men where XY men so that that their their testosterone drop drop between 12 and 9 in that space, their, their bodies... 12 be- and 9 millimoles. Yes, correct. So their bodies become very compromised, and there's actually a TUE process by WADA to be, for men to take um, uh, excessive... Uh, not excessive, uh, synthesized testosterone to increase their health because it's, it's already noted that this is being a problem. So they know... We know because at my levels, at 9.6 MOLs, I go into, into post-menopause. My levels were at 0.5 virtually non-existent. So we had all this research and the CCS cell kept me at that space because they don't know. So then what's next though? So then then you go to, so you go. So, so it got to a point. So what did happen? You challenged this and where did you challenge it and where did you go? Well, I was very fair because what happened, I went to, I went to the UCI, I went to IOC because I, I know a lot of the directors and I talked to Cycling Canada, even the CCS. And, and they all, um, I guess they'd all been collaborating between each other. And they said, Kristen, this is just the way it is. And I asked them, well, where's the science and the research to these policies? So I, I started challenging it at that level. So I actually made contact with um, Oliver Rubin, Olivia Rubin from, from WADA, who's the yeah. chief scientist of, of WADA in Montreal. And he was del- he's absolutely delightful. He's a great man. And we actually got along quite well. So it was recommended to me. I've interviewed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he's fantastic. And, um, and he actually agreed with a lot of the things I'd been saying. So what I did, I actually, this is... Um, in in um, early t- 2009, 2010, I, 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 um, wrote a, he to, I wrote a letter through the Athletes Line, which is open to all high-performance athletes, to ask for you know, medical issues and so on. And I wrote a letter as, as per. Three weeks later, I received an email from a lawyer in Montreal, WADA's lawyer, on behalf of John Fahey, who was the CEO of, of, of the World Anti-Doping Agency at the time, threatening me personally and stop asking questions about the research to the, to the existing Stockholm Consensus policies put up by the IOC, and also um, um, progressively supporting Arnie Linquist, who was the um, head of the IOC Medical Commission, then head vice president of the IAF and Medical Commission, and then also said vice president of WADA, and talking about his credentials and so on. And um, I'd never met John Fahey before. Um, and again, um, it was purely a, 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 which we now know through the legal processes in Toronto, that they were trying to oppress me and, and, and prevent the, no, the acknowledgement publicly about that the science and the research doesn't exist to the existing policies. And so but you ended up uh, in <coughs> human rights... The Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. So, so just out of that situation, I, I waited another year or two, um, and I, I progressed with this as my, my health continued to fail me. And, what it, and how it got to the Human Rights Tribunal, there, I first went to the Court of Arbitration in Switzerland five years ago, and I said to them at this time, and it was interesting because when I called the internal lawyers there, they actually knew about me and, and my case. Um, and they said this, they said that this could actually we actually thought you might do this one day come to us and talk to us about it, and which I found really interesting. And um, they said that first of all, the court of arbitration in Switzerland is is not the right place for this. We are the CAS is an arbitrary body, and we are designed specifically. This, this is what they said to me. They said we're specifically set up for athlete contracts and anti-doping issues. We're not seen as, we're not viable um, to be able to deal with other aspects of other issues in sport, such as gender or many other civil issues that occur for athletes. So it was very clear, and they actually sent me two um, PDF documents of specific cases to actually illustrate their point. And, and uh, it was made very clear to me. And I, I come from a legal family myself in Toronto, so I'm very aware of the legal processes. So I sat on it for another year or two, and I told that I, I, I was humming and hawing the idea that um, I was, um, 
you know, I'd go for another TUE, but I was afraid of being gender tested again by, from CCS. I just didn't want to go through that horrible process again because I knew at that end that they didn't know what they were talking about and, and they didn't know what they were doing. Um, so um, it was very clear. So then what I decided to do is I, um, in, for the athlete, going back to the athlete licenses, when an athlete signs off his or her license on that agreement, is you're signing off your rights as an athlete to the Court of Arbitration in Switzerland as a due diligence, as a body that to represent if any, any disputes in sport, um, and also onto the World Anti-Doping Agency. And so there was three items on that, and those two items I, I obviously couldn't sign on to because here I am signing on to a, a signing on to a licensing agreement with the UCI saying the 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 anti-doping body doesn't recognize the, the issues in health, and they don't even understand it. And so by signing on to that licensing agreement, my health is only going to fail me even further. Yeah. So eventually, it took me, I, I, I couldn't compete because- So, you, and so, and so you, that's interesting in terms of, you know, many people will be familiar with the pinch time decision, and that brings up the issue about licensing and implied consent, et cetera, and informed consent. The, uh, so in your case then, you said, right, so you've spoken to CAS, Cast the court arbitration for sport. Right. They say to you, you know, we're not the right uh, body for this. So then you decide to take your case to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, and the parties to that case were the um, Cycling Canada. Is that right? Kind of first, the parties to it were the first of all the International Olympic Committee, yep. the World Anti Doping Agency, Union Cyclist International, yeah. my International Federation, Cycling Canada, and our, my provincial body, the Ontario Cycling Association. And so, uh, and how long was that, that case running for? Almost three years. Three years. And to cut, like I said, I'll link to a whole bunch of articles from Daryl, Adir, Andy Brown, uh, a whole bunch of other people so, for, so they can get, like, so, so people can read it at their own leisure. And also I'll link to a, a podcast that you've done that you kind of reminded me of with uh, Jimmy uh, Fuller from Skin yeah. as well. So again, but but the, uh, by the end of this case, um, uh, you end up in, in, a, in a mediation, right? And it's the Correct. outcome, I think, uh, uh, that I really just want to get to now because as I said, we'll link to all the rest of it, but the, the outcome of this mediation was... Well, the outcome of the, of the mediation was that, um, specifically, that it was recognized by an external court of law outside of the court of arbitration in Switzerland, that human rights violations are occurring through policy being, being created and distributed by the, by the IOC uh, within, within the signatories of global sport. So it's a huge issue. And, and I think it's, it's really important, if we go back to even the, the, going back to the Pestein case, and I think I want to really want to recognize, and this is, I think, really important to the legal community, also the, the very ideal of the, of the CAS as, as, an arbit, as a reasonable body to recognize and support athletes globally um, in terms of the athlete rights, is that there's a couple points here. First of all, in terms of the process, I went through a three-year process. I had to walk away from sport to carry out this action. Okay, uh, in terms of the Pestein case, where the problem became was in the German courts, where she was um, still competing in her speed skating, and she just, she couldn't walk away because she'd sign an agreement, like, as I'm talking about, yeah. and continue to compete and tried to fight this. So the the German courts, in uh, opposite of what happened to me in Canada, which I, is that you're saying you went outside the system, but is it a cost? Is it a cost? There's a cost to that because like, in Canada, I I couldn't sign my athlete license because if I sign my athlete license, my 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 government you would say contract, would, yeah. you would say you have to go fight this in the court of arbitration. But because I didn't sign my license, they had to recognize my citizenship and support me. My the province of Ontario, the the legal support that I received were government were from the province of Ontario. I had government lawyers who are experts in human rights committed to my case. They recognize the importance to this, not just in Canada, but globally for athletes. And, and the disparities that are happening within the court of arbitration, as we've seen with the Judy Chan case and, and various other athlete cases, well, those cases should have never been at the court of arbitration in Switzerland. Never, because as we know, first of all, the people that are, that are pursuing that in, the, in that space aren't are reasonable people, they aren't knowledgeable in this space. And the court system itself has said, we should not be doing this type of, of legal work. It makes it, um, I'm sure it's going to form part of your wider discussions at the conferences over the next yeah. couple of weeks, but the element of 
Um, I know at the ASA conference, uh, the International Sports, International Sports right. Law Journal conference, this was one of the points of the discussion at length was about the recognition of human rights, recognition of, of, of athletes' rights as workers, yeah. a whole bunch of other different uh, related issues and around who was the competent body to hear those issues and whether or not the court of arbitration for sport um, uh, you know, was a competent body. I think it's a, it's a really interesting point and I think yeah. Yeah, one that needs to be looked at because I think uh, the issues of human rights, you know, we get back down to all of sport, right? right. Because it's all about people, it's mm -hmm. about human beings trying to participate in that right. activity and therefore at the heart of it, it should... Yeah. Um, yeah, that should be weighted quite heavily. Well, the the interesting thing is, and I, and I think on that very point, Sean, is 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 what we've learned through this process. You know, two and a half years ago, you can check in the media as well. Is that the IOC had come out when I put my application for it to say that Kristen should be fighting this in the court of arbitration. This is a sport issue. Blah 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 blah. The reason why they were first of all that they were doing that is because the the, the court of arbitration in Switzerland is owned and run and controlled by the by by the CAS mm. by by the IOC. Sorry. And so it was threatening to them because to come to Toronto, as they did, and when we went into the divisional court, which they lost, is that it became, we became equals, right? Because now they're coming into a, court, a real court of law. There is real action to that court of law and that you've got lawyers who are experts in civil and human rights, right? There's no, there was no sports lawyers in, there was five sets of lawyers mm. in, in, in my court processes that were part of these, representing all these teams. They're all in there at the same time. Not one of them was a sports lawyer. They were experts in civil law or, 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 or human rights. And I think this is, we'll come back to this, I'll make that point in a sec. But also the, the very interesting, the only one, I mean, I, I, applaud the UC, I applaud the UCI. They got a human rights lawyer to understand where this is a problem for them and how the policies of the IOC are about human rights. Mm -hmm. See, that's the difference. So like everybody gets caught up on the testosterone and all the gender stuff. But once you understand all of that stuff, you now understand how it's a human rights issue because first of all, the work was never done by the IOC, but we understand it from a, such a physical level that the, the impact, the, the people that you're impacting from this is massive yeah. and, and the health risks and all those other things. So the, 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 the interesting part with the, UC, the way the IOC responded, and this is where I want to make my point, they hired one of Canada's top litigators, Ronald Slott, to, to litigate against me and, and as an effort to you know to scare me okay. as an attempt. So, sorry, the police are horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a we are right. So, so that, but, but, that, but so. just to give you an, an emphasis to see the difference in the behaviors. Uh, you know, even Water got a civil lawyer. The IOC hires a litigator mm. because the IOC knew that I was right about this 10, 12 years ago. We had these discussions with Jacques Rogue, Arnie Linquish, and Patrick Shrewmash all those years ago. So the issue was it, this has been. A decade of oppression and the problem is they never thought I would actually get them into a, a into a court outside of sport and which I was successful so the issue was they wanted to get a litigator not because the idea that they could come forward and win based on the science and so on and the facts which they had zero what they were trying to do was lessen their liability so they actually went to try to even change the, the gender policy a month before again which had no science and research to it because it was actually an act not the idea to bring gender variant or transgender more athletes into, into the system. It was, it was more of a dead cat tool to be able to look when they came into court to lessen their liability. Yeah. Appear yeah, they, yeah. they were doing I, better. I, I, should, I should clarify as well though as well, but I think it's just a, um, the, I thought my counter argument, they would say they were, I don't know, you don't need to respond to this, I don't know what your response is gonna be, but the counter argument was that they said there was uh, uh, science behind it the, the, the point being is whether or not science was accurate whether or not science it was relevant but a whole bunch of they have zero science i'll let you leave it there yeah. zero. i can tell you all four parties that were engaged yeah. had there was no fight there was no, no. science and all they that that is fact Okay, so, so they, 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 nothing was presented on their behalf, and the IOC were trying to find legal ways, loopholes, to, to, get, out, to get out of their liability. Uh, and so so uh, Daryl Darryl said on that case, which I thought was, was good in his article, the one, one line that I saw, that I thought was good, and then I said I'll link to all the other articles that are out there as well, mm -hmm. because I think they're very, very helpful, and there's a better, um, uh, there's a, a more accurate, let's say, a full, fuller timeline of, of the sequence of events by and the, the one that Andy Brown had done. Um, can, I, can, I just, can I just mention Andy while we're here? Absolutely. I just want, I just, Andy Brown has been phenomenal um, at this, and he has been, I've known Andy since 2009, and he helped me when I was working with Greg Gott and Tim Noakes with, around with the days of Castor, mm -hmm. and uh, 
a phenomenal human being, and he he was able to communicate the whole case and the processes. Um, I stuck with Andy. Com- I, I, this is another great point. Yeah. I didn't go out to the larger media. I didn't want to overexpose the people that I was. I, I was seated at a very ethical line because I wanted to deal with the facts, and and I knew that what the facts were, and 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 kind of saying it over and over and over and again, and, and that that authenticity. And working with Andy, he stayed that line, the ent- that ent- course, the entire time. So he was helping to educate the public, specifically about the issues and how it became human rights issues. And he committed to that in the last eight years. And so it, it was an, impre- an impressive effort on his part. Um, and I didn't, I didn't need to go to anybody else because I knew the facts. Yeah. And, and the facts were with us. We knew it was going to be a, a timeline of process. Well, on that point, that's the bit I was going to say about well, so, so props to Andy. Yeah, and well absolutely. For his work. So, awesome. Yeah, praise where it's due. And um, uh, from Daryl, though, the, the, his line that I, that I quite liked was, it was a victory for evidence-based policy. And the UCI accepted that critique, and I think that the yeah. um, the yeah. outcome from this is that, which I think we've just, in, in in all areas of sports law and sports regulation, I think going back to this point of saying, yeah, we need to get more robust rather than just you know t- you know building policy on just one person's opinion. So the outcomes from this, though, which I think are incredible, the outcome from this, is, which is the you know the opportunity for the future now from this, because you've gone through years of turmoil. Uh, frustration, um, yeah, expense, the whole bunch, the whole bunch of different things. Yeah. Uh, now though, you're going around the world, sharing your experience, you're sharing your journey. There's been a recognition from a body outside of the, the sports system right. that human rights need to be recognised and addressed. Um, well, how are the UCR responding to this now? From from so. Well, it's been it's, uh, it's been it's been a great journey. Um, I mean, I mean, I like. If I can just say to your listeners, I mean, as we were talking even about my childhood, mm. you know, I was a kid that was bullied in the in the school ground. You know, I was a kid who lived in silent and pain and struggling with my my identity. And I thought my worst secrets of, of why I was like this little kid, terrible, dealing with these cross gender issues, and thought I was this awful kid. And you know, even aspects of having to monetize that through, through suicide, you know, um, and dealing with those social and to me to be where I am today was it was a feat, not just me on my own. You know, sure, I was. I, I'm the. I'm. I'm the. I've been the face of this. Um, I, I. You probably. I, as a good friend of mine from Canada, is one of Canada's top gen, um, ethics experts uh, by the name of John Delacosta. John said to me when we were doing some policy for Canadian sport a couple of years ago. He said, "Kristen, you wouldn't have a, a penny in the bank, and you couldn't stop yourself from doing this." I really feel that I was meant to do this. So this is, even though I lost my Olympic opportunities in, in, in 2008, 2012, and so on, I met some incredible people on this journey who brought me along those, in the way, along this way and, and continue to in extreme voices. But I realized today, at this moment, these losses built me and built me stronger, built the language around this where we can make it more inclusive. And, Brit, and it's some of the things that Daryl's talking about as well, he's, an, again, another amazing contributor to this space as, a, as an academic and dear friend, that what we're doing, we're creating a language and an environment where we can actually now talk about it. And, and so in terms of my case, before we talk about the UCI, is that what my, my case has done, it's, it's first of all, it's done is saying, these things happened. We can now say, these things that Kristen's been talking about for all these years have happened. And, and so no one can say they, they can't diffuse that, right? They can't run away from those facts. But I think what the best part about it as well is that we've learned a great deal from it and it's, and it's created a tool set for all of us to converge together to have a language around this and to work together. Because uh, this is what, going now back to the UCI, is that it's interesting because um, the late Hein Vuberg and I've known for many, I've known Hein for many years and he came to me actually last um, February. Privately, he'd read a, a, a book from a, a, one of the, the world's leading uh, neuroscientists by the name of Dr. Uh, Dick Schwab out in the Netherlands. And Dick had, had committed a, a, the third chapter of his book uh, about my journey as an athlete, um, um, just recently published by Penguin Random House. I didn't know anything about it. I know, I've known Dick for, he's a mentor in my life. He's about for about 14 years or so. Um, I'm going to visit him while I'm here. So he, he I, I, Hein came to this on his own. And he had wrote me, for many of your listeners who may not know who Hein is, he is one of the past CEOs of, of, of World Cycling. Um, he was part of WADA. He's also an IOC member and so on. And um, he came to me uh, back in February last year after reading Dick's book. And I'd never met Hein. And he, commi- he said to me, he says, Kristen, I apologize for what I did to you. 
He goes, I was one of those, one of those gray-haired guys that was part of those committees and, and did those things to you. And he goes, for this, I am a sorry. And he goes, what Dr. Schwab wrote about you, and I, he goes, I'm only here to support you and the journey that you're this on. This is where knowledge is power, right? Yeah. Right? And I think I call it the, the thing, I, I fall into this trap again in, in just all, all lots of areas of my life, which is becoming a certainty addict. I try not to be. But people feel like they know something and they, they, they just won't move from that position. And I think um, that's not good in society, but it's particularly not, it's not good in sports or, and also when people are being harmed from it. Right. And I, and I think, I think, I think, I look at my journey, yes, the harm happened and, and, the, and the legal process is like, it, it, we're still dealing with the trauma aspect of my human rights outcome mm -hmm. for me personally. Like the, the, the human rights case deals with the issues of sport. Mm -hmm. We still have to rectify some of the trauma issues that came to me personally. Um, those are in ongoing discussions now. Um, but I think what's more importantly is, is what's come out of this is it's um, as working with um, Brendan Schwab from the World Players Association, and I've come to know Brendan really well as a dear friend over the last two or three years. And he's come into the space as an international lawyer, recognizing through my journey as well as we're now talking about human rights for the first time and having an athlete-centric focus and looking at all areas of diversity. I, my journey was through gender. There's a, there's a plethora of, of, of diversity in our global sports system, which we all share. And I think we need to kind of get our heads around and, and, and understand that we, we all share this, this space together. And it's really changing behavior. And, and I think, you know, I think of what Richard McLaren said to me many years ago, and, and I think I mentioned, I, I, coming, it was back in 2010, we'd been presenting in Turkey at, a, at an international law conference and on gender, funny enough. And I'd met up with Richard at, down at the Union Station in Toronto. We sat at Union Station. We're both Canadians, and um, we were sitting at um, Union Station, and Richard said to me, he goes, Kristen, for you to get your way uh, is for Arnie Lindquist to pass away. And I was, you know, it made me really think, and, and this is what's really important, is that we've got, for, for Richard to say that to me, that shows me, which I now know, better understand, is that, that centric power of the IOC and how internally it works in the International Olympic Committee is that Policy is being generated not based on science and on authenticity of researchers on, on really skilled individuals. It's based on politic and, and, and generations of history. So we're dealing with an issue, issue of gender testing, which has Im implicated women for five decades. So when we go back to the responses from the IOC in, in my court case, is that they were concerned. It wasn't so much of getting the science and the research correct. They were, their, their response was, if Kristen wins this, we're, we're concerned that we're going to lose our sovereignty, Swiss sovereignty, our autonomy of sport, and that it would give more women more access to access us and sue us. And when, when all the lawyers, when we read it, we're just, we were just kind of going, that is your concern? That is a, that's a good concern to have, but that's where you should have started from when you, when you started generating these things. Because I see this as, as part of this evolution of good, good governance in sport and good and informative and thing. There is undoubtedly one more awareness. There's more, uh, I think, a general, well, I think being optimist on this. I don't think that you, I think you mentioned it earlier. I think there is a, um, yeah, more awareness in our generation and, and uh, coming through about and people trying to be uh, genuinely more inclusive uh, I think partly due to the information that's in the public domain, yeah. partly because I think, given everything that's happened in the world, I think, I like to think anyway, I hope anyway, uh, that it does continue this way. Yeah. That people have a bit more sense of, you know, they want to be truly inclusive, they want to do good in the world. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that people in the past didn't, but I just think their worldview is different, and therefore the outcomes are going to be hopefully be um, more, genuinely more inclusive, and therefore will, the, the, the likelihood of success developing regulations that right. fit for purpose Absolutely. evidence basically. Right. And I think I think that's that, I think this is where it's going. It's, it's actually fast tracking now. We're really seeing that momentum. And I think if I can even come back to to some of the comments Hein had made at the time too, is that where, you know, is is that the, 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 it's of that of that of that genre that of that age, right? And um, it was wonderful to have that recognition from him and that continue. I I received correspondence from him like right up to four days till he passed away. So he was quite pleased to see see this even this evolution as uh, has taken uh, that it's evolving. Um, so I'm I'm so glad that I was had come to know him in that in that space. Yeah. Um, but that and it, but for me it's it, it's 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 exactly what you're saying, Sean. Because I think it is an evolution of our society. And unfortunately, young, uh, 
athletes like myself and other women, I, I'm one of many athletes. I, I know dozens of women that have happened this right around the globe. It's, it's not unique to one specific country. Um, it is some, it's cultural behavior, some stuff. Um, it is of, a, of the older genre, typically. Um, there has been a lot of politic in it. And, and it's, but the, the big part is too, is, and this is what I'm, I'm in now in a bigger discussion on the, um, because of this, um, trying to, um, is that we're looking at too, we have to recognize the history. We can't, we can't say these, and that's just what my case does. It focuses, it's forcing us to recognize the history for us to move forward, Absolutely. right? We have, to, we have to establish that. We can't ignore it didn't happen. And because this is, we get these policies that aren't evolving and we're not getting, we're not getting smarter together. You see, whilst it is globally uh, outside of this issue, and I talk about this a lot, yeah. um, that people replicate problems all over the place because there is, uh, you, is whilst in, the, in one sense the sports world is quite a small world anyway the legal sports legal world it's very small. small yeah small, small world as well yeah um but when you start to divide that up with uh based on jurisdiction you start up with make cultural impact and stuff like that you can see a lot of the time that uh, there's not as uh, efficient necessarily i like to think where we come in slightly to help right. out on that there's not an efficient knowledge sharing uh, across all the sport, obviously. Right. But some sports are doing much better than others, and it right. depends on how big the sport is. And right. Well, I think it's also, as I think this comes back to what Hani was saying, as the caretakers of sport, uh, the IOC is, uh, the IOC is about two things. This is Hines' words. He said, we're, we're, the, we're, we're developing policy in the Olympic Games. And he said, we should be listening to Kristen and working with Kristen to make this change and not fighting with her. But I look at this, as, as I said earlier, is that where I sit today, I, I may physically represent this cause and, I, and I'm kind of on the forefront of it, but again, I didn't do it alone. I, I, I've got, I really have a global group of people and, and, and through the ups and downs and, and dare I say, it makes me very sad to see many of, I, I mean, I come from, a, a, I come from Canada, yeah. this happened in Canada, but I come from a Canada country too that it's, you know, we're pretty, we live a pretty good life, like, we, like, like here in the UK, like yeah. we have opportunity. I don't live in India or I don't live other than impoverished countries around or in South Africa and other countries like that that aren't fortunate. And for women who are put in into, into sport, who are being pushed into doping, they're either sexually violated by their coaches, all these other things to win medals, you know, these are the things that are kind of going on. And these women are trying to just put food on their table or help their their families or their or their or their communities, these small villages they live in, to to come out of this poverty, this excessive poverty. So I mean I feel I'm a voice of that exchange. I, I can't help what happened to the women in the past, no. but I feel through the mechanisms that I, I achieved in Canada, it's putting this discussion where I'm, I'm in London right now with you. Yeah, I'm going over to the Endoven and then into Geneva to speak with some of the world's leaders about this in this space that I'm carrying forward this message so it doesn't happen to another woman in another country who, who wants to be part of sport and, and deserves to be part of sport, but doesn't have that voice. Uh, that's a fantastic way to finish this interview and I have to say that um, yeah you're going to leave a very positive footprint and I think that's a very important thing so we talked about it off, off, offline about legacies something I think so you know what, what impact did it make I think turning an, uh, a negative into a positive in this way in terms of the, the case that happened is a, is a very something you'd be very proud of it was an absolute delight to, to have you here in London honestly thank you so much for taking the time out learned a lot um, we'll probably need to listen again to, to continue learning. Um, I look forward to seeing, I wish you loads of success in Geneva and in Eindhoven. Um, and I think there is a, a general trend to recognition of more you know, athletes who ask something about human rights in general in sport, which can only of be... Of all athletes. For, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's all like, athletes. It's going to be positive for everyone, right. including the spectators and the fans. This is going to be, you know, it has to be the way forward. We want to make, we want to make the Olympic movement the vision that we all, we all want it to be, and we have to work together to do it. Thank you so much. You bet. Awesome.